starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask at this very moment you would be gracious to us and help us to understand this passage. That for those who are heavy laden and who are laboring, they would find rest. For those who are downcast, that they would find encouragement. For those who are unrepentant and disobedient, that you would bring them to repentance. And for those whose hearts are hard and whose eyes are blind, that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts. Father, if there are those who have believed in a type of Jesus that is not a real Jesus, who have fooled themselves into thinking that they are sheep and yet aren't, would you show them that this morning? We pray this in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, there was a book that was released that made a bit of a, a shockwave uh, throughout at least the the Christian circles. It was a very timely book for myself as 
I had found myself maybe, not maybe, I won't, I won't sugarcoat it, I had found myself at the lowest point that I could possibly experience when it comes to me. Emotionally, I was downcast. What you could say is I was depressed, I was anxious, I had a panic attack. It was rough. It was scary. It was hard. And in God's gracious providence, there was a book that was written by a man named Dane Ortland. Some of you may be familiar with the last name Ortland. He is the grandson of Ray Ortland and Ann Ortland, who authored a few books back in the day. He is the son of Ray Ortland Jr. And this book's title is Gentle and Lowly, Christ's Heart for Sufferers. I want to read something for you from the first paragraph in this book, Gentle and Lowly, in the first chapter. Dane Ortland says, And my dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him. In the, the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters. In 89 chapters of biblical text, there is only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Let me say it like this. There is only one place in all of the Gospels where Christ peels back the curtain to his own heart and says, this right here is what motivates me. This is what gets me up in the morning. Having a gentle and lowly heart. Before we get to the end of this passage, we've got to work ourselves through the beginning. Because there is a reason why Jesus ends up saying, for my heart is gentle and lowly. And in order to best understand Christ's gentle and lowly heart towards sinners and sufferers, we have to understand the first few verses that come before that. What we're going to see this morning is on the cusp of Jesus looking at the crowds and affirming John the Baptist's ministry and, and saying, look, if this generation understood who I was, they would understand who John was, and if they understood who John was, they would understand who I am, he pronounces woes. Two woes on three cities. He pronounces these woes on these cities because he did miracles in these cities, and they refused to believe in him. They shut him out. They refused to look at him as whom John was saying that he was, the Messiah, the one to come, the King of Kings. And so he pronounces judgment on Chorazin, on Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These are cities in the region of Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time ministering and doing miracles. And then he lets the crowds know the reason why they don't repent. It's because it's not revealed to them because they are wise in their own eyes. They lean on their own understanding and wisdom. 
But to those who are like little children, these things have been revealed to you. Because if you know the Father, you know the Son. And if you know the Son, then you know the Father. And here's where then Christ really gets to the point. He looks at the crowds and asks them if they're laboring. if they're heavy laden, if, if the works that are weighing them down have caused them to feel like they just don't add up, that they're failures, that they'll never do enough, Jesus says, come to me. Come, and you will find rest for your souls by taking up my yoke because it is light. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. So here's what we're seeing today. Here's the aim of this passage. Here's the aim of this sermon. If you're a note taker, here is the phrase or the sentence. Jesus condemns the unrepentant while bringing rest to those who repent. Jesus condemns the unrepentant while bringing rest to those who repent. And as I promised last week, we've got two points First point, verses 20 through 24, we'll see Jesus condemning the repentant and what he exactly condemns them for. And the second point, we will see that Jesus then calls people in to find their rest. And those who repent, they will find their rest. This is verses 25 through 30. So let's go on to this first point, condemning the unrepentant in verses 20 through 24. We see in verse 20, he begins to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Right here, Matthew is letting us know straight from the get-go, this is why Jesus condemns these cities. He did most of his works here. As we've been seeing in the gospel, according to Matthew, what Jesus has been doing is he's been going around to the cities, proclaiming with his mouth about the the kingdom of God. All the way back in Matthew, we see him proclaiming this. He's calling people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But not only is Jesus going around calling people to repentance through the proclamation of the kingdom. No, he's actually going out and doing deeds of mercy by healing those who are sick. Telling those who are lame and cannot walk to get up and walk. Causing those who are blind to see. Those who are dead to rise. He's doing these miracles And the people do not repent. And so he's pronouncing judgment. And we see the first woe to two cities. We see woe to you, Trazen. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I've done my works, my mighty works in your cities, and you refused to see who I was. There is no way that you can 
plead ignorance with your case. I've done these mighty works and you did not believe. I healed the sick. I told people who could not walk to rise and walk. Here we have a two Jewish cities in the region of Galilee who would have known the Scriptures, who would have read Isaiah, who would have been familiar that there would be a king that would come to make all things right, and yet they are refusing to acknowledge him. And here's the great reversal that's taking place. Is that if Jesus would have went to Tyree and Sidon, this people would have repented. This people, these, these people, Tyree and Sidon, who were pagans, who were Gentiles, who were outside of the people of Israel, not a part of that nation, not a part of God's chosen people. They were idol worshipers who did not worship the God who had created them, but instead traded in the Creator to worship the creation. Jesus knows that if He would have went to these cities and done these mighty works that these Gentile pagan idol worshipers would have repented of their sin. But they just wouldn't have repented of their sin, Jesus tells us. They would have repented in sackcloth. They would have, they would have went to the store, gotten a potato bag, you know, the, the potato bags that you go uh, potato sack racing. They would have put those scratchy things on, and then they would have rolled around in ashes. They would have heaped ashes on their heads. What Jesus is saying here, they wouldn't have just repented and turned from their sin. They would have ugly cried while they did it. They would have taken their repentance serious. They would have not only have said that they repent, they would have felt it in the innermost parts of their hearts. Jesus' listeners would have been furious to hear Jesus say such a thing. That God would have given grace to those people? They would have repented? Jesus is pronouncing judgment because of their refusal to repent of their sins and trust Him as the King. And so this is the first judgment that He pronounces, but the second judgment we see He moves on to Capernaum. Verse 23, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. I don't know about you, but that's strong language from Jesus. Capernaum, you think out of your spiritual arrogance that you will be exalted to heaven. But instead, you will be cast down into Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. This is the, the Sodom from Sodom and Gomorrah. The Sodom back in Genesis that when Abraham is pleading for their case, that if there's any righteous people there, 
that God would spare them and not cast down judgment. This is the Sodom that when two angels go to rescue Lot, the men of the city come to Lot's house, banging on his door saying, we want to rape those two men. Give them to us. This is the Sodom that was morally corrupt and evil and wicked. This is the Sodom where judgment was so severe that when Lot's wife just peered back for a moment, the holiness of God caused her to become a pillar of salt. And yet Jesus is saying, if the mighty works done here in Capernaum would have been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. We see a sense of indifferent, spiritual, self-righteous arrogance in the people of Capernaum. They sit here and they think to themselves that they will be exalted to heaven. They're sitting here and, and thinking to themselves, you know, when, when I die, there's this Tom and Jerry thing that's going to happen that my body's just going to start to float right up to heaven. And yet Jesus says this is not the case. Capernaum was a spiritually arrogant place that was indifferent to Jesus and his mighty works. I don't know if you're here with us this morning, and this is one, if you are one of these two places. Refusing to unrepent of your sins after hearing the gospel proclaimed time and time again. Not looking to Christ as the King, or maybe you're the one who is spiritually arrogant, sitting on the high seat, looking down at all others, being the critical judge over them. Having a spiritual arrogance indifferent to Christ being the King, because really, you want to be the ruler over people. wonder if that's you this morning. You see, I can't help but read this passage and ask the question, if we're looking at this and we're reading it, is what Jesus implying here that God judges people differently? Or does God judge everybody the same? I think what we can imply from this passage and other passages is that no, God does not judge everybody the same. Judgment seems to take into account opportunities given to people. Why would I say that? Because I know that there is this case that people plead that God judges everyone the same, but yet we're okay with saying that God will judge teachers more strictly. There's already a difference in judgment. We see here in this passage that although 
Tyre and Sidon did not repent and they will go to hell, that for whatever reason, Jesus is saying that Trezin and Bethsaida will experience greater judgment. Same thing with Capernaum and also Sodom. We see in Romans as Paul is beginning that letter and he's explaining that nobody is without judgment because God has revealed himself through creation. In Romans 2, then he goes on to ask those who are Jews, if you pronounce judgment on people, then how much more, if you're not living that out, will judgment be pronounced on you? We can read in Matthew as Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for leading people to have works heaped onto their backs. And he pronounces a greater judgment upon them. This is what scares me a little bit with the modern evangelical movement of consumerism. Because if we just consume more knowledge, then that makes us more holy. And yet, to quote one of my professors in college, at the end of the school year, he looked at us and said, students, with this information, what will you do now? It is not okay to know things without then applying them. And I worry at times if we have created a culture in the church of information consumerism, never actually then practically living out what we've been learning and hearing and reading in the Scriptures, but instead wanting to move on to the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. what this tends to breed is a prideful spiritual arrogance where we sit on high thrones looking down at the world for its immorality. So if I could just ask another question. A question that I appreciate if, if we as a church seriously contemplated. Have we done all the right things, meaning have we learned or have all of the right theological implications thought out in our heads and yet don't actually trust in Jesus? Do we have all of the right doctrinal boxes checked off and yet what we've failed to actually do is trust in Christ? Have you been going through the motions, checking all of the boxes, yet never trusting Jesus Christ as King? Maybe as Savior. Maybe as somebody who would save me from my sin, but not somebody who is your Lord and King worth following. Maybe we look at Jesus as a good movement starter. Look at all of the good things that Jesus did for humanity, or maybe we look at him as some type of mascot 
that we can look to and point to to justify our positions, whether theological or political. You see, this is why Paul is so concerned with the Philippians as he writes them and says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you here this morning and is your conscience, is the Spirit pricking your heart to say, I have been refusing Christ as King. I have been coming to Him for something other than Himself, something other than His Lordship. I have sat from this spiritual arrogance seat, looking down, being critical upon those who are lesser than me because obviously I'm the greatest. Can I encourage you, look to Christ. Look to Jesus and see how our humble, meek Savior loves the outcast, loves the helpless, cares for the poor, trusts the Father with His life, even to the point of death. As I was working through this passage, I couldn't help but think to myself as I was working through this passage, if Jesus is pronouncing judgment on these Jewish cities, and He's saying these people would have gotten in, but you out of your spiritual arrogance wouldn't, I'm left with the question, well then, how can we possibly get in? If these people couldn't, then who can? How can we? This is where we move on to our second point, that there is rest for the repentant. In verses 25 through 30, we see what this looks like as Jesus now moves on and He declares, He, he moves away from the woes and now He declares, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to two little children. Hey, look, what this means, what Jesus is saying, is you've got these arrogant, prideful people who are trusting in their own wisdom. Their own worldly wisdom, thinking that will get them through this life. That will get them the salvation that they are longing for. And yet what Jesus says is it's not those who are wise and understanding, but instead those who are like little children. <laughs> How much we could learn from little children. Sharice and I have been experiencing this lately because Haddon seems to be a very inquisitive thinker. It's the best and the worst as we're sitting at the kitchen table in the morning going through our little catechism that we go through and we're talking about how Adam and Eve, they sinned and through their sin, sin came into the world and Haddon looks at Sharice and says, Mom, did Adam and Eve go to heaven? And Sharice looks at me and she says, what do you think, Pastor? And I look back at her and say, what do you think, Pastor's wife? But the most recent question that Haddon's been asking us is we've been talking to him about the gospel and talking to him about trusting Jesus is, how do I trust Jesus? Can you show me how to trust Jesus? And Sharice and I are sitting here now thinking, how do you explain how to trust Jesus to a three-and-a-half-year-old? 
I'm not just scratching my head because I've got an itch. I'm because I'm. If somebody's got some advice for us, please let us know. And yet Jesus is saying, and he says multiple times within the scriptures that those who have faith like children are the ones who will enter the kingdom of God. I mean, the best way that I think that we have shared what it looks like coming to to trust Jesus to Haddon is, do you trust that mom and dad will give you food? Do you have to worry about your food? Do you have to worry about where you will sleep? This is the trust that we are called into of trusting our Heavenly Father like a little child trusts their parent. It's not the wise and understanding, the ones who have every single thing figured out that the kingdom has been revealed to. It's actually the ones who are like little kids that don't have everything everything figured out that enter into the kingdom and have these things revealed to them. And, And what are these things? All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This seems like an incredibly confusing thing Jesus would say. If I could just sum this up like this, Jesus is saying, if you know me, you know the Father. And if you actually knew the Father, which, which uh, Terazin and, and Bethsaida and Capernaum would have said, we know the Father, Jesus is saying, then you would know the Son. I and the Father are one. And so as Jesus is going around proclaiming the kingdom of God, inviting people to repent and become citizens of the kingdom, he's asking them for trust like a little child would trust their parent. This is why Jesus then ends this discussion. This is why we see the end of chapter 11 ended this way as he then moves and he says, come to me. How, Jesus, do I have faith? Do I trust like a little child? He tells us, come to me. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor all who work and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. At this point, Jesus is calling out the legalistic rules that the Pharisees had heaped on to the people. Rules like you can only walk so far on a Sunday. He's looking at the people who are burdened with their sin. Asking the question to themselves continuously, Have I done enough? Have I done the right thing? Am I failing at this walk that I have with God? Am I doing enough? 
Am I doing enough? Will God love me? Am I doing enough? And Jesus says, come to me. Are you laboring and heavy laden? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. This rest that he's talking about is is rest, a spiritual rest. We come to Him and we take on His yoke, but what we do is we give Him our yoke. We give Him our sin. He takes our sin. He bears our sin. He dies because of our sin. He defeats our sin by rising on the third day. And He reigns victoriously over our sin so that all those who trust in Him can have rest for their souls. Are you looking for rest for your souls? Isn't this the thing that we have seen advertised to us in so many different ways? Are you tired? Why not go on another vacation? Are you anxious? Here are all of the breathing techniques and pills that you can take to relieve yourself from anxiety. Are you angry? Well, you can go to that one place in downtown Appleton and smash plates if you want to. We're being sold this idea that we can find rest right now with momentary things. And yet Jesus is saying, if you want true rest, come to me. Come to me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yet there's multiple of us, or there's so many of us that look and ask this question, Isn't the Christian faith full of works and not rest? Because like, aren't we supposed to go and be disciples who make disciples? What Jesus is talking about is the difference between grace and legalism. Right here, Jesus is talking about the difference of grace and legalism because he doesn't say just not to do anything. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we still put on the yoke of Christ. The yoke of Christ of following Him, being committed to Him, obeying Him. We take off the yoke of our sin, the yoke of legalism, and we put on the yoke of grace. So if I can explain maybe the difference between legalism and grace, let me explain it like this. Legalism tells you this. Legalism says, I obey God so that He loves me. Legalism says, I obey God so that He loves me. But grace says, I obey God because I love Him and I know He loves me. Grace says, I obey God because I love Him and I know He loves me. We obey and follow Christ because of our love for Him, not because we're afraid He won't love us back in return or that we haven't done enough. Have you come to Christ? Have you found your rest for your soul in Him? If not, right now is the time. Right now, there is no better time to find rest for your souls than right now. 
So come to him. Come to him and trust him. Come to him now. Are you sick and tired of laboring? Feeling heavy laden? Not knowing if you've done enough? Come to the gentle and lowly king who will give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending our gentle and lowly Savior. We thank you that we can have rest for our souls by coming to Jesus. Amen.